Welcome to the Utah Episcopalians, a podcast of the Episcopal Diocese of Utah, where we look at our unique church in our unique land. And welcome, I'm Craig Worth of the Diocese, along with Nick Cockrell at the controls, and also we'll be asking some questions a little bit later. And today, we're going to look at what a subject, a fascinating subject, and that is, as you might have heard, faith traditions continue to face criticism about inclusion of all in their clerics. And this is a good time to mark a milestone in the Episcopal Church, and that is that it's now been a half century, 50 years since there was a major change that took place, and that is the ordination of women. Now, first as deacons, and then a few years later, they were ordained as priests. Now, our guest is one of the longest serving women priests in the entire Episcopal Church at this point, and we're proud to say and happy to say part of our own diocese, the Reverend Canon Mary June Nestler. Now, she is currently the course director of St. George's College, which is halfway around the world in Jerusalem, but because of the pandemic crisis, she is in the United States, and we're going to talk to her today. Of course, previously, she served our diocese here in Utah as, as an executive and, of course, as a priest. Welcome, 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 the Reverend Canon Mary June Nessler. Thank you, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here on this podcast, uh, and hello to Nick as well. I look forward to talking to you about this uh, important topic in our church. And of course, we're talking about 50 years ago. Let's just say uh, now some of us might remember 50 years ago, but most of us don't. Can you kind of historically tell us what happened previous to that? Women were not ordained in the Episcopal Church, as uh, we know, or some other faith traditions are facing at this point. And then something marvelous happened that the church saw the need to include women first as deacons and then as priests. Now we're throwing out words that maybe are kind of misunderstood. Tell me, um, what did that mean, ordination to deacons and then to priest? Well, important that we back up just a little bit and say that from 1855, surprisingly early, women were set aside as deaconesses, that was the technical term. And so from 1855 to 1970, the Episcopal Church had a total of about 500 deaconesses. And they were what we might call social workers for the church. Now in 1970, they were admitted, those who wished to be, who wished to be designated, were admitted to the ordained office of deacon and others were ordained as deacon who had never been deaconesses because the general convention of the Episcopal Church voted to allow women to be ordained to what's technically called a major order. And the major orders are deacon, priest, and bishop. So as deacons in the church, they continued their social service uh, work for the church and the ordination rite uh, speaks about how they are a connection between the church and the world, the world and the church. 
and they assist the priest in their duties uh, for public worship. Priests are called to uh, conduct sacramental worship, to bless the elements of bread and wine, to absolve people of sin, to conduct fully public worship services. They're assisted by deacons when they're present. And then bishops take a role of leadership of a whole area called in our church a diocese. So from 1970, women were admitted as deacons, and then it gets very complicated. Already it's complicated. Now you started um, as a deacon, right? I mean, uh, just to set how it works, not all deacons become priests, but all priests were ordained first as deacons, right? Yes. So you were ordained as a deacon? Yes, I was ordained as a deacon in June of 1979. And then I had to remain a deacon for the canonically or the church law required period of six months. And so I was ordained in December, on December 16th, 1979, as a priest. So I have now been a deacon for 42 and a half years. And a so priest you know kind of what 40, it's... Yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt there. I'm sorry. Uh, never interrupt a priest. I know that much in this, uh, in working at the church. No, I know you were very gracious about it. Um, you know what it's like to be a pioneer woman ordinate, don't you then? Because again, you're, you're back when there was just a handful in probably in your ordination in your diocese, what, two, three others maybe that were ordained? What was it like to be a pioneer 50 years ago? Uh, right now, of course, we know it's just always accepted. It's in many dioceses such as ours. But what was it like then? Well, it was scary. It was exciting. It was encouraging. It was uh, difficult in many ways. I was the second woman ordained uh, in the Diocese of Maryland, which was my sponsoring diocese, second woman ordained to the priesthood for the Diocese of Maryland. But interestingly enough, when I took my first job as a deacon and priest at St. Margaret's School in Tappahannock, Virginia, I was the second woman deacon and priest to serve there. They had had a woman even earlier than I, which made sense. A girl's residential school having a female chaplain, it worked well. But it wasn't easy for any of us. And when I moved immediately in 1980 to the Diocese of Los Angeles, over 500 clergy are there. But when I got there, I was the fourth female cleric. So it was pretty lonely for the few of us for many years. And I remember, for instance, in one of my first diocesan conventions in the Diocese of Los Angeles, uh, we women clergy wanted to gather uh, after an event. And we asked the secretary to announce that we were going to gather. And there was booing in the hall. There was booing that the women clergy, and, and we were teased about, ah, what are you going to get together to do together? There, were all, there was also tremendous support in many places for us, and, uh, but it was hard 
in those first, I'm going to say 20 years, it was not easy. And the numbers of ordained women in many dioceses remained very, very low. Has it gotten better? I mean, by the time you left Los Angeles and came to the best diocese in the world, that of Utah, um, did you find that it had got that it got better? Absolutely. And by the time I left, I had already served for 14 years as dean of uh, a seminary in that diocese. I uh, so I myself had had taken up a ministry that was significant there. And I was working training men and women for ordained ministries. Women had become uh, uh, to take up important places in the church. And not long after I left the Diocese of Los Angeles, two uh, suffragan clergy uh, bishops were elected who were women. So yes, there's been an enormous change. But I think I would say that change in my 42 years, the greatest change has come in the second 20 years, uh, where we saw women first ordained as bishop, uh, Bishop Barbara Harris, the first in the whole Anglican communion in the late 1980s. And that broke open a door. But just to balance that, when I was ordained, and when we would sit together, the few women clergy that we each knew in one area, we would actually wonder if we would live to see a woman elected rector of a congregation. That's how distant a possibility that seemed to us. And I remember being in Los Angeles in the early 90s and getting the news that the first woman in the whole state of California had been elected rector up near San Francisco. So it took a while for the wheels to get rolling pretty quickly. Why did you do this? Why did you, I know as a priest you're called and I know you feel the call and I'm not questioning why you became a priest, but you know, we go back to the 1970s, you knew that there were people, like you say, that would boo you. There were times that um, the clerics that were women had to have a police guard. I mean, it was not a good time. Why did you want to do this? I did feel called to do it. And I felt called into the pioneer aspect of it. My mother had been a pioneer. She was a sports writer in an era where women were not uh, newspaper sports writers. Uh, I had an example of pioneering, but I think I was gifted uh, in, in my growing up with, with courage, with faith, strong faith. And I, I just felt that throughout all of these years, God was with me, God was encouraging, God was sustaining me, and God was giving me what I needed. I felt very, very strongly that women were needed in the church and in the Episcopal church. And I wanted to be a part of that exciting new era. And I was willing to give my life to it and have given my, my life to it. And I've never regretted a day. It's been an incredible joy. What happened 
and again, I go back to these pioneer days because most of us who are listening to this podcast, me included, are people that are sitting in the pews. I am, of course, not a cleric, and I make that very clear because when I speak for the Episcopal Church in news releases and all that, I know, uh, don't get me confused with those who actually are the ordained clerics of the church, the learned people. But I want to ask, um, what was it like for those of us in the pews when suddenly there was a woman in the pulpit, a woman behind the altar. Um, you were there to witness those. Was there a change in the mood of the church? Was there a change in the kind of ministry? What, what was it like when that first woman walked into, uh, in, whether it was Los Angeles, whether it was Maryland, Virginia, or even here in Utah, which goes back a long way with pioneering of women clerics, what was it like in the congregation? What I can tell you is what people said to me and what I heard and what I observed. And that is, it was less of a shock than they expected. In fact, people would shake my hand at the end of their very first service with a woman at the altar and say things like, that wasn't so bad or I don't know what people are upset about. Or I heard most often, gosh, my biggest worry was that we could hear a woman. I could hear you very plainly. Um, or I even heard people say, wow, you really looked like you knew what you were doing up there. Or gosh, that's one of the best sermons I've heard in a long time. So if you could do your job, if you knew the craft, let's use a, a strange word, but if you knew your craft of being a priest, if you'd been well-trained, which women were in those early years, that we worked on being well-trained, we had to be better trained. And uh, if that was the case, people often commented, oh, I feel okay now that you know what you're doing. On the flip side, there were people who stood up and walked out I remember that, that they would go all the way through the sermon, but they sure wouldn't take communion from my hand. I'm happy to say that was not terribly common. But often, uh, there were two sets of people that were not as hospitable to women clergy as, as others. One was male clergy. There were distinctive groups of men who were just not yet ready to welcome us as their colleagues. It was difficult for them. And the other were often women in the period. Really? Women who had taken leadership in their congregations who may have felt that women were something of a, of a threat. And I remember it being, uh, it being a goal of ordained women to befriend and work with and work alongside and learn from women in leadership and congregations. I want to get into a little bit more of that, that the resistance, because in fairness, to talk to a pioneer like yourself um, and the struggles, I know you love the church, you love the people in the church, but there must have been some Oh, geez, some tough, uh, tough points. I mean, very similar to, I think, of women who have gone into politics, women who have gone into various parts of business, 
the first woman that was a, a pilot of an airplane. I remember on the intercom that I was sitting on the plane and she said, we'll be taking off, you know, and, and there was like a hush over the plane, like, yeah. oh, you know, can we go look at this? I mean, is there, and, and that type of thing, but um, so I, I don't want to forget that, but I do want to bring up one point in that as you were talking about the history through your experience in Maryland and Los Angeles. Interestingly enough, in Utah, we have been one of the most progressive, and maybe you would disagree. I, I, I would hope that we are reflective and progressive in that we had women clerics very early on. We had one of the very first women bishops, um, the Bishop Carolyn Tanner Irish, who regretfully left us this summer, uh, but uh, uh, one of the first ordained in 1996 as bishop. And I know the ordinance and a lot of that has been your doing in teaching formation. Many of our ordinance of our new priests, our new deacons are women. Um, is that true that Utah has been progressive with that or um, oh, not? Absolutely. Utah has been at the forefront of welcoming and ordaining uh, women. You are right that, that the late Bishop Irish was uh, the first woman bishop west of the Potomac River. That seems impossible now, but it was the case. And uh, Utah's always had uh, a near equitable number of women and men in ministry. Uh, it, the last three years in the Diocese of Women, only women have been ordained, not by design, but those are the people that have come forward to be ordained deacon and priest. Uh, and so I found coming to Utah first as canon for ministry formation, and then as canon to the ordinary, the chief uh, canon or assistant to the bishop. Uh, for diocesan matters, I found that a very comfortable place to be. And I did not find, except in very, very uh, dark corners, one might find just a little resistance to women. And, uh, and you're right, it's still the way in, in the church as it is in the general society. I remember maybe 30 years ago, talking to one of the first women uh, oral surgeons in Los Angeles. And it was funny how we were each comparing what we had been through as first women in our fields and our reactions from other people and the things we had dealt with were nearly identical. We could have told the same stories about one another. So uh, women in the church, I think, face largely the same issues that women in the rest of society face. Uh, but there are some special things too. And what we have brought to the church, I think, is, uh, is a good theology of wholeness, uh, a good anthropology of looking at how God has created both men and women in God's own image. And we have helped the church move forward in a number of areas. I think of the very earliest days, the earliest 10 years that I was ordained, we began in the Diocese of Los Angeles to talk about um, conduct, 
of ministers in the church and proper conduct and sexual misconduct in the church. And I'm glad to see that our efforts on that have borne enormous fruit over the last 30 years. We have talked um, in, in wonderful terms that makes us uh, certainly proud to be Episcopalians to see how we've progressed. But I know, and part of the fact of our transparency, part of the fact that it, the Episcopal Church does everything in public or tries to in its general conventions and the debates and currently. So in that, in that mode of transparency, I know that we can't say we've got there, that we're at 100%. We still have some places that we need to change and grow. What are some of those that you see that will complete or at least improve that cycle that started 50 years ago that we need to just push forward a little bit more in this inclusiveness? Well, one of, the, one of the greatest trends that has come about just in the last uh, couple of years, since 2019, is the extraordinary number of women bishops being elected. Two to one uh, are bishops who are women. And that is helping us have the uh, percentage of women in the House of Bishops and working across in dioceses across the church go higher. We're now close uh, to 25% uh, of active bishops who are women. That's an extraordinary number. And, uh, and yet, I would point out that uh, figures I've just reviewed from, and these are the latest available from 2018, as published by our pension fund, show that women in senior clerical positions across the church have a $15,000 disparity between men and women in their compensation uh, in senior levels. So, and the compensation disparity all the way down to beginning clergy exists as well. So we have some work to do in the way that women are paid. Also, uh, women are not yet called to and hired uh, in the same numbers as men to serve in uh, the larger congregations. Uh, in some dioceses, that may be true. In other regions of the country, that is not the case. So for me, what I can say in just these 50 years since women were ordained deacon and uh, in the uh, other years since we've been priested, some uh, seven years later, um, women have made incredible strides. And as a church historian, I know how long it can take for the church to move on anything historically. And for me to look at the changes in my lifetime that have happened, I give thanks. And I believe they are God-given uh, changes that the church has heeded the call of the Holy Spirit to, to move in the right direction. But we have ways to go. You feel that what happened 50 years ago has helped also in the church accepting other areas necessarily of inclusiveness, let's say, 
um, and, and we can honestly talk about, we know just in the last 20 years, or maybe it's even 25 years, um, certainly with gay clergy, we know the ordination of Bishop Robinson and what happened then. And that's in our recent history, particularly with Christianity 200 or 2000 years old, when we're talking 25 years, it's a, a blimp. Do you think that the ordination of women and what you went through and others has also helped the inclusiveness as we look at trying to um, increase the numbers and, and at least um, demographics, Latino, Latina, um, gay, whatever minorities, is that, is that true? I think there's no question that you're right about that. Um, women uh, were the pioneers. I think the uh, uh, ordination of all of God's children has flowed from that example uh, uh, in greater ways. Not that, not that we were not ordaining gay people, we were not ordaining uh, persons of color, we were. But it has come, uh, it has come more to the forefront. I believe that uh, there's more work to do, much more work to do. But women uh, in the Episcopal Church showed that it was possible to push this church toward its future and for the church not only not to crumble, but to gain strength and to, uh, in many places, to grow in numbers. And although uh, collectively we're, we're holding our own in numbers, I think ministry has been strengthened and people have been better served by first the example and the ministry of women and now the opening of the floodgates of the conscious and out ministries on so many levels of other people. One thing that just as you were saying that, that is interesting, women for the history of the church, and you go back to what you were talking about, the deaconess, interestingly, that the um, deaconess were outreach. And that we're, and now today, our, our pressure in the church is to increase our outreach, is to go back to the various things that deaconess were assigned to do in working with the impoverished, working with those in hospitals and, and all the various things of what we talk about, outreach, food outreaches. And the men kind of did the worship. And now we're looking to put our whole church um, emphasis on outreach. That, that must be part of it's interesting how we've gone that full circle. And I want to ask Nick, Nick Cockrell, who, you know, is, has a political background and a background in Utah as uh, a successful campaign uh, director, worker, executive to um, get women elected to our uh, state legislature to serve on various um, governmental things. After you've heard uh, the Reverend Canon Mary June Nestler, our guest on uh, the Utah Pod Capalians. What is your observations, Utah in general? How does this compare with the Utah story and, and really um, the influence of what the Episcopal Church has had here? 
absolutely. I mean, while I've been listening, I can't help but think of all the progress that has been made for women in other areas of work and life. And I know that's already been mentioned, but in, in my work, I, I've had the privilege of working with legislators and local officials who are women. And one thing that I have loved about the increase of women engagement is because is it provides new and different perspectives um, that weren't always there before. And we have such a long history, both in the church and in, and in society generally of, of men being in positions of power and being you know, influential in their own work and life that we are gaining so much in this recent history that we just never hit before. So that, that's something that I'm, I've been reflecting on and am grateful for. Um, I mean, you, I see it every day uh, when I work with um, priests within our diocese and also when I communicate with my colleagues in, in the political sphere. Yeah. Any questions you have for our priest that's our guest? I mean, again, I know you've been with the Episcopal Diocese for a little more than a year now, the pandemic year. Right. <laughs> and, and when you hear somebody with the experience and the life story of, um, of our priest that's a guest, the Reverend Canon Mary June Nestler, what do you, um, any observations or questions you have for her? Yeah, I mean, I think a question that's been on my mind is when you interact with friends or family or even just neighbors who may not be a part of our faith tradition, how have you built and, and maybe have different views about women as clergy? How have you worked to build bridges in conversation and, um, and have a conversation about, about your work and what you do without you know, pushing them away and, and turning, maybe turning them off? Good question, Nick. And uh, I must say that I think because women clergy tend to be new and many people who are not part of the church, especially don't know what kind of animal we are, they tend to be a little nervous around us. Um, and, and they tend to be rather formal sometimes with me, I'll speak for myself. And they have all these questions they want to ask, but are fearful to ask. So I usually just lead with, is there anything you'd like to ask me? You know, go ahead, I, I, you know, I won't break. And uh, you can ask me anything that you want. Um, my children often got interesting questions about that. Um, but about having a mom who was a priest. They also have a dad who, who was a priest. So uh, they, had, they were double PKs, as they like to be called, <laughs> preacher's kids. But it was an oddity, to be sure. So um, if I show up, say, at a doctor's office or for a PTA meeting, and we went around the room, and I'd say, oh, I'm an Episcopal priest, there would just be a silence, whereas a man would be you know, reacted to, they, it's a category they understand. Um, most people don't know what to, their second question to me is, oh, what do we call you? Well, the church has never decided what to call women clergy. So women will answer different things. What do we call you? But they seem to want to be more comfortable. And I say, call me Mary June. But I think when I interacted with people who, who don't know about it, about women clergy. I was conscious, conscious of just trying to be a human being, trying to be a, 
a fun person to be with and, and, and uh, a normal person, if you will, to be with, and then to educate people into it that way. To allay their fears that I wasn't going to be uh, holier than thou, because right. the only model most people have for women in the clergy is nuns. Ooh, yeah. You see, most people can recognize a woman in, in the religious orders, whether by dress or by literature, they know sort of what a nun is and does. And so we were often just put in a nun category and expected to be nunly. I have a great, I have a very funny story for you about that. When I was pregnant with my first child, I was checking in, I was wearing a collar and I was checking into a hotel near Los Angeles for our clergy conference uh, that was one or two nights. And I walked up to the, uh, to the registration desk of the hotel and then the person behind the desk appeared so he could not see then that I was pregnant and he said he kept addressing me as ah sister it's nice to have you here sister so glad you're checking in glad you're with our hotel sister and then I said thank you and I checked in got my key and walked away and he sort of gasped and he said <laughs> sister you're pregnant and I, I said something I shouldn't have said, but I'm glad I did now. I turned around and said, the times are changing. And I <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure I left him with the idea that I was a, a, a pregnant nun. And I <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, yeah. uh, that, that would complete this uh, podcast. But I do have <laughs> one other question uh, for you. And I know we've gone over time. And that's Nick's problem uh, when he uh, edits this. And I know we we can go a little longer, Nick, on some of these, can't we? When that's interesting. Yeah. So um, let's. This is one that I want to go just a touch longer, and that is um, kind of a final question for you. It would have been enough if you would have said at this point, "I've been a pioneer. I'm done." and I'm retiring, and you have the right to, but yet you've taken on another career at St. George's College in Jerusalem as the course director, and we know as a priest in um, the Middle East, uh, women in the Middle East have not achieved anywhere near what they are here as far as as public acceptance and my understanding is that you cannot function as a priest behind the pulpit even though you have far more experience than probably 99 percent of the clerics that are all men in the um, in our anglican and episcopal churches what um, why did you want to do this why would you go and be a pioneer all over again <laughs> well, I think exactly for that reason that I felt I had the experience, both in Jerusalem, because I'd been associated with St. George's from, uh, from 36 years ago to the present time with some breaks, but I knew what it was like, so I was not going in uh, uninformed, but I, I felt it's been instructive for me and for the Diocese of Jerusalem as well. 
first of all, I want to say that the bishop, uh, the former bishop and the new archbishop, uh, archbishop of Jerusalem are incredibly supportive of the ministry of women in their diocese to the extent that they can minister. And just last year, I was invited to preach for the very first time in the pulpit of St. George's Cathedral. The times are changing there too. The newly elected Archbishop of Jerusalem uh, is in favor of ordaining women and hopes in the future that his diocese will move quickly toward that. And I feel that in the last three years, I've been resident in the uh, diocesan compound there that I have by my example and my encouragement, uh, I hope that I've been able to bring the diocese uh, through my meeting of the diocesan clergy and speaking with them, befriending them, hope I've been able to bring them a little closer to that reality. But it has not been easy for me. And, uh, and yet I felt I was called to that ministry and the work that I do at St. George's College in leading study pilgrimages of Anglicans from all around the world and other Christians. I felt that I was called to that ministry. In many ways, it's my dream job of my whole life. So uh, I'm back in the, the same place I was as a pioneer, but this time I think with a few more skills that help support my time. And that is, we will have to end the podcast at this point and uh, uh, to talk to a real pioneer, somebody that we are so proud to have been associated with in our diocese and um, really a marvelous person, a marvelous priest. And thank you so much, the Reverend Canon Mary June Nestler. This has been the Utah Podcapalians, a podcast about our unique church and our unique land. I'm Craig Worth of the Diocese, along with Nick Cockrell. Thanks a lot for listening. Take care.